Hi there, welcome to the Causeway Coast Vineyard podcast. We are a church who are passionate about seeing the transformation of individuals and institutions in our city through the generations to see all things new in our community. We hope you enjoy this message. So you're so welcome here today and you join us as we continue our Becoming series. My name's Peter Lannis and today we are looking at purpose So in Philippians chapter two, we read this, for it is God who is at work in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Two things we can note just straight away as we read that. We sometimes talk about our purpose, but this verse is really clear. God works in us to fulfill his purpose. And the second point to note is this word for purpose, eudoikia. It can be translated as purpose or goodwill or delight. And so the journey of becoming is not about finding our purpose in life. It's about God working in us to fulfill and to bring about his purpose and his delight. That's our role as image bearers. So look, as the guys have noted, we're back in lockdown here in Northern Ireland. We're back to online church And there's a lot of talk about saving Christmas, failing to recognize that it's Christmas that saves us. We're in this season of things being stripped away, of things being laid bare. Why do we want to gather together at Christmas? What is the point, the purpose of Christmas? What what is the purpose of our work? As many of us see our jobs redefined in this moment. I used to spend pretty much half my life uh, working, uh, traveling, uh, meeting people face to face and speaking at events. All of that has been stripped away. I can't do any of those things right now. So what is my purpose in this moment? It's a deeply unsettling time for many of us. Furlough and the grant system deals with the financial side. But there are more fundamental questions about who am I? How do people see us? What's our purpose? What is the purpose of education and how will the pandemic change that? What's the purpose of church and what's it going to look like going forward? What about international travel or local sport, the role of technology in our lives? Will there be an economic tsunami coming our direction? How are we going to pay for all the spending? Who's going to bear the brunt of that? And as we hear news about the various vaccines, it sounds incredibly positive But we make no mistake, there's not going to be a return to life simply as it was before. There are going to be profound changes in this moment and they will last for years. And yet in that, we want to remember that we inhabit, that we indwell, that we live into a story that runs much deeper than this moment. Our sense of purpose is not found in education, in work, or even in church, wonderful as those things can be. The trouble comes when we try to find our own sense of purpose or look for it in the wrong place. So God is saying in this verse, I have a purpose for everything. I created the whole cosmos and I have a role for you, a purpose for your life. I'm inviting you to join me in the redemption of all things. I'm inviting you into a journey of becoming who I made you to be. But the reality is that we live in a broken world and that is the price of freedom. We're free to make our own choices and those choices have consequences for us and for others around us. 
And so we think about purpose as we do that today. I want to look at the story of Daniel as our kind of framing story. Somebody found himself in a really messed up world when people were asking serious questions like, where is God in this moment? They couldn't go to church or, or temple, but their issue wasn't lockdown. Their issue was exile. And some of the challenges that they faced are very similar to what we're seeing today. For those of you who like to know where we're going, uh, we're going to explore five F's. Foundations, formation, faithfulness, fruitfulness, and flourishing. So over lunch, you can see who can remember those F's and get them in the right order. But we want to look first then at foundations. You see, Daniel was a bright, young, handsome guy, and that's what the text tells us in Daniel chapter one. But Daniel found himself in exile. King Nebuchadnezzar had come and he had he'd taken over Jerusalem. He'd attacked it and he took away all the leaders and he took them really to become good Babylonians. This was a real season of stripping away for the people of Israel. They were God's chosen people, but they weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing. They weren't looking after the widows and the orphans. They weren't observing Sabbath. They weren't being a light to the nations around them. And so God intervenes. And the Israelites, God's chosen people, find themselves in exile. Church or temple was a huge deal to the Israelites, but there was no temple in exile. And they weren't out of church for a few weeks or even a few months. They were out of church. They couldn't go to temple for 70 years. Daniel and his friends are taken from Israel, they're taken to Babylon, they're given a new education, they're given new names, they're given a new language and culture, they're given new food, and all of this is in a new country. Everything is stripped away. And the question in that moment for them is, how solid are your foundations? Uh, John Eldridge picks this up in this great little book called Epic. I'm not always an Eldridge fan, but I think this is, a, this is a great one. I want to just read this little bit from the back cover. He says this, um, Sure, good things happen, sometimes beautiful things, but tragic things happen too. What does it mean? We find ourselves in the middle of a story that is sometimes wonderful, sometimes awful, usually a confusing mixture of both, and we haven't a clue how to make sense of it all. No wonder we keep losing heart. We need to know the rest of the story. For when we were born, we were born into the midst of a great story begun before the dawn of time. A story of adventure and of risk and loss, heroism and betrayal. A story where good is warring against evil. Danger lurks around every corner and glorious deeds wait to be done. Think of all those stories that you've ever loved There's a reason they stirred your heart. They've been trying to tell you about the true epic ever since you were young. There is a larger story and you have a crucial role to play. Eldritch uses this example of if you go into a huge sort of mall as he would call it in in the States or a big university or a big theme park or something, you often see these big maps of the whole setup and then a you are here sign. So you can maybe plan your route or navigate your way. He said, oh, that we had something like that for our lives. He goes on to say, this is the story in which you have found yourself. Here's how it got started. Here's where it went wrong. Here's what will happen next. Now, this, this is the role that you've been given. 
If you want to fulfill your destiny, this is what you must do. These are your cues, and here is how things are going to turn out in the end. Oh, if only we had that, but he's saying we do. That's the epic story the Bible is trying to tell us. And so Daniel and his friends have a choice. They can look around in this moment and conclude that God has abandoned them, or they can remember that they are part of a larger story, that God has made a covenant commitment with them, that he has promised to never leave them or forsake them. The story begins in Genesis, not a story of accidents, but a story of purpose. God created each and every one of us, yes, us here today in his image. We are divine image bearers. And we are to bear that image and to carry that image as we step out into the world each day. We're his representatives. We are kingdom carriers. We are messengers and merchants of holy hope. And there is this constant cacophony of voices telling us who we are and how to live, what's right and what's wrong and how to lead a better life. They tell us what's true and what's false and what will make us happy and how to get there. Deep foundations are critical in this moment as these voices press in upon us. And so we see Daniel and his friends resolving not to defile themselves with the king's food and wine. They knew they had a foundation story that shaped who they are. They trusted that God was at work in their lives, even in exile, willing and acting according to his good purpose. In the New Testament, the writer to the Hebrew tells us of some of the heroes of the faith that we read about in this epic biblical story. That we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. And so we should throw off everything that hinders us and run the race with perseverance. The end of Hebrews chapter 12 says this, therefore since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Can't be shaken because of its deep foundations. We're about to move to the second day after formation, but that only works if we're building on a solid foundation. One of my colleagues was telling me that uh, her house uh, over in England, the cracks began to appear. And they had a friend who was a structural engineer who came around to visit them and she was pointing out the cracks and saying, like, do you think these are significant? And he went outside and looked and he said, man, the whole corner of your house is subsiding. So the whole thing is twisting and these cracks are just the beginnings because your foundations aren't secure. And then everything built on it begins to move and to twist. There are so many stories out there, kind of big stories and small personal stories vying for our attention. And they all borrow to varying degrees from the larger story a story woven into the very fabric of our being. We're being invited into that larger story, the true story of the world. The story of an author who is good, the essence of all that is good and beautiful and true, for he is the source of all these things. And it tells us that he has set our hearts longing on him, for he has made us to live into this epic and it warns us that truth is always in danger of being twisted and corrupted and taken from us. But it calls us into this deeper story that is true and deeper than any other and assures us that there we will find meaning and purpose in our lives. 
So can I encourage you? John Eldridge's book, listen, you could read it in a couple of hours. This is a really easy, light read. Or you can check out the Being Human podcast where my friend Joe, whose house is falling down, and I talk about some of these kind of foundation stories, what it is to be human in this cultural moment. So that's our first F, foundations. And then our second F is formation. So Daniel's taken off into exile. And now the real counter-formation begins. He's taken from Israel into Babylon and everything has changed. The geography is the obvious piece, but the language, the culture, the name and the food and all of it has changed to start to form Daniel into a good Babylonian. In his case, it's really obvious. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't hide his intentions. He said, look, I beat you guys and now I'm going to shape you. I'm going to form you into my ways. Our culture's a little more subtle on this. There were two authors who wrote about this and what the future might look like about 70 years ago. Uh, You might have heard of them. George Orwell was one. He wrote a book called 1984. Some of us had to read it at school. And another guy called Aldous Huxley. And he wrote A Brave New World. Orwell feared that those who would deprive us of information Whereas Huxley feared that people would almost give us too much information and overwhelm us so we became passive. Orwell feared that the truth would be hidden away from us. Huxley feared that the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared we'd become a captive culture. Huxley, that we would become a trivial culture. Orwell worried about Big Brother, you might have heard of that phrase, watching us, the state taking away our freedoms. Huxley worried we'd just give our freedoms away. More people have heard probably of Orwell, but I suspect Huxley is much closer to the truth. We're being shaped and formed by a culture of surveillance capitalism and an attention economy where these social media giants are trying to get our attention all the time. The founder of Netflix, a guy called Reed Hastings, has said this, their main rival is not Facebook or Twitter, it's sleep. That's the only thing they're fearful of. At the same time, Netflix has produced this fascinating program called The Social Dilemma. If you want to do some homework from this, go home and watch that. Especially if you've got kids at secondary school or at uni, or you want to sit down and really look at how these social media forces are are kind of pitted against us, if you like. Here's a question for you. Who pays? Do any of you pay to download the Twitter app or the Facebook app? Do you pay to be on WhatsApp or Instagram or Snapchat? No, none of us pay. So how does it work? How are these companies worth so much money when we don't pay them anything? Here's what a guy called Yaron Lanier, the daddy of virtual reality, says in that program or that movie, The Social Dilemma. He says, we have created a world in which online connections have become primary, especially for younger generations. And yet in that world, anytime two people connect, the only way that's financed is through a sneaky third person who's paying to manipulate those two people. So we've created, this is Yanye's words, an entire global generation of people who were raised within a context where the very meaning of communication, the very meaning of culture is manipulation. We've put deceit and sneakiness at the absolute center of everything we do. It's one of the most kind of striking comments in that movie. If they don't charge you, they're changing you. That's the bottom line. If we're not paying for it, then somebody is paying to change us. Because the only way to make money out of these uh, sites and these applications 
is to change what we do, to change how we think, to change who we are. It's gradual, it's slight, it's almost imperceptible, but make no mistake, we are being formed and shaped and molded. They're discipling us. It's behavior modification 101. And so Facebook wants to get you hooked on that so that then a car company or a political party, or yes, even a church will pay them to target you. Why do they pay? Because they believe in doing so they can change your behavior to get you to buy a car, vote for a political party, or yes, go to church. That's the way it works. And the world is selling us a whole variety of stories. The individual rules is one story. Hey, you're the boss. You get to decide and do what you like. But note the rise in loneliness and anxiety in our culture. Just last week, they were saying uh, 4.2 million people in the UK are often or always lonely. Or consumerism, the answer is, if only you buy fill in the blank, you will be happy. Of course, we're all sitting there saying, yeah, yeah, that's other people. That's not us. Now look maybe down at your trainers if you bother getting out of your PJ so far today or maybe look at the phone or the TV or the computer you're watching this on. For many of us, we can't say, look, technically these were the best trainers, that's why I bought them. Or, or technically this phone has the best operating system, so that's why I bought that. Somebody told us that we needed it and we all fall for it to varying degrees. We're living in this really interesting season where actually there's an increased interest in religion. Because during this pandemic, science hasn't been able to, have, to answer a lot of the queries that people had. But watch out as a vaccine begins to roll out and there's some sense of returning to normality. And people are like, phew, that whole season of looking for something more might end. They're, oh, science is fine, we're all okay again. And as for technology, is it not the big winner in this moment? Solving all our problems, allowing us to go to school or to university to buy products, to chat to our friends, to go to work, all without leaving our house. You see, we're all in the business of formation, formation and shaping and molding people. That's what we do as Christians. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was an incredible follower of Jesus. As the Nazis came to power in Germany, the church capitulated, it just gave in. And so Bonhoeffer was, was invited to set up this training camp in a place called Finkenwald. And so it was really intense kind of seminary environment. They were praying and they were reading the scriptures and there was confession and shared rhythms of life. And when his friends heard about the intensity, they were actually really worried about him. They were kind of like, is this level of formation really necessary? Would you not burn out? Isn't this all a little bit extreme? And so one of his friends came to visit him and Bonhoeffer took him in a little boat and they rowed across the Oder Sound and they climbed up this hill and they came to a little clearing. And from there they could see the planes taking off and the Nazi soldiers performing their various drills. There were hundreds of them, just like little ants practicing again and again and again. And Bonhoeffer turned to his friend and said, this, what we're doing, has to be stronger than that. People talk about the billions of dollars sort of stacked up against our kids today in terms of some of the social media and the gaming companies. And we're naive to think that just an hour a week is going to just offset what happens in the 50, 60 hours a week we spend around in culture. This, what we do, has to be stronger than that. We have to think about formation and take it seriously. Colossians chapter 2, Paul's writing to the Colossian church and he says this, watch out for people who try and dazzle you with big words and intellectual double talk. They want to drag you into endless arguments. Sounds a bit like Twitter and Facebook to me. Maybe that's just my world. And they don't amount to anything. 
They spread their ideas through empty traditions of human beings and empty superstitions of spirit beings. But that's not the way of Jesus. It's not the way of Christ. We're being formed in school and work and online through music and business books. We are being formed by social media and mainstream media, by political parties and by conspiracy theories. We need to take that formation seriously. We need to watch what comes in. It's hard and it can feel overwhelming. And just one small thing, one small suggestion I want to make of what you can do is something like the Lectio 365 app that I know we've referred to before. Really great way to do this. Just this morning again, this is the first Sunday of Advent and it reminds us and kind of reorientates us into what it means to be sitting in this season of waiting. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Kind of brings together our scattered senses and slows us down as we enter the day. How are we taking seriously our formation in this moment? The third F is faithfulness. When Daniel and his friends find themselves in exile, the false prophets come and say, listen, it's fine. You're only going to be there for two years, maybe a year, maybe two. It's fine. And then Jeremiah comes along and he says to the people, look, hey, you're going to be here for 70 years and then I will bring you out of this place. The book of Daniel is really clear that people are in exile, not because God got distracted. He didn't sort of drop the ball in that moment, but by design, the Lord let Judah fall. But God's faithful to his covenant commitments. The people hadn't been. And so God sends a prophet to say, I haven't forgotten you, but it is time to get faithful. Eugene Peterson is famous now for the message in his many books. And Peterson lectured actually at Regent College where we got to study. But before all that, he was faithful in a small church for 29 years. He's written a great book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And this is like an original version. It feels like his subtitle is Discipleship in an Instant Society. And he actually wrote this 40 years ago. He said, look, there's a great market for religious experience in our world but a little enthusiasm to sign up for a long apprenticeship, a long obedience in the same direction towards holiness. The title actually ironically comes from a quote from a guy called Friedrich Nietzsche, um, who was very much the antithesis of what Peterson was saying. Nietzsche was saying that the world does so much to discourage this kind of long obedience to any cause. We're called to be disciples. The Greek word is mathetes. We are to be apprenticed to our master Jesus. To be a disciple is to be a learner. Not about acquiring information about God, but about the skills of the faith. And so Peterson draws the contrast in this book between a tourist and a pilgrim. Tourists are all about the destination rather than the journey. It's all about the high points without the pain. He said, no, no, we're pilgrims. We spend our life going somewhere. We spend our life journeying towards God. And so his book explores these dog-eared old songbook. It's tucked away in the Hebrew Psalter. He journeys through these psalms known as the Psalms of Ascent that the, the Hebrews would have sung on their way up to the worship festivals in Jerusalem. The sort of songs actually the exiles might have sung by the rivers of Babylon as they sat down, as they wept, and as they remembered Zion. And in those he focuses on things like the importance of righteousness, one of the Psalms of Ascent, Psalm 129, says that the Lord is righteous. It's not that he's right. He is, but that's not the point here. It's that he's in right relationship with us. That God is, righteousness is the reason that we can look back upon a Christian life 
crisscrossed sometimes with cruelties and unannounced tragedies, with unexpected setbacks and sufferings and disappointments, but also look back and see it as a road of blessing in which God was always in right relationship with us. The central reality for us as Christians is the personal, unalterable, faithful commitment that God makes to us. That's the key. God is faithful to us. And so we build our foundations on the God story and we are formed and we are shaped by that story that constantly reminds us that God is faithful to us. The Christian discipleship, our purpose in this life is a process of paying more and more attention to God's righteousness, to his faithfulness and less and less attention to our own. We find meaning in our lives, not by probing our moods and motives and morals, but by believing in God's will, in God's purpose for our lives. This is what the writer to the Hebrews notes. He points out to the great crowd of witnesses and he said, look, those guys weren't perfect. They were amazing. There are role models often within the biblical text, but they made their share of mistakes. But God stuck by them and they learned how to stick with God And so in Hebrews 12, we're encouraged. Let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. Our purpose is found in walking in his way steadily and firmly and finding that the journey integrates all our interests and passions and gifts, our human needs and our eternal aspirations. It's a way of life that we were created for. Daniel reminds us there will be endless challenges to keep us on the growing edge of faith. But God, a righteous and relational God, is always there for us. He is faithful to the end. If you want to kind of up your homework, get a hold of Peterson's book. It's an amazing text on a long obedience in the same direction. The fourth F is fruitfulness. You see, the people were in exile and Jeremiah says, build your houses, plant your gardens, you know, plant for crops and and get ready for a harvest. He says, marry and have kids, multiply and be fruitful. But for more on this, I'm going to hand over to Rose uh, for a little bit more on fruitfulness. So the Hebrew word for awe is the same as that, which means to strike with terror. And sometimes God's recorded promises can sound heavy or light to our ears, depending on what season of life we are in. Sometimes we need to do a bit of wrestling for the blessing God is able to call us into. Many of you will be familiar with this one. I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Some days this promise can bring relief, courage, inspiration, even peace. Other days this might sound like the threat of medicine. You know it might be good for you, but it tastes pretty awful. In Genesis, God declares fruitfulness over his creation. Within us is the created capacity to produce fruit. But don't panic, this isn't a biology lesson. These words 
or to state the obvious, life-giving. But for those of us for whom having children has been a more difficult journey, these can be heavy words, not to mention the toxic stereotypes that surround birth and parenthood. That's for another day. But being fruitful is what we are by design. What is fruit? Fruit has several qualities. It looks good, tastes good, and is good for you. We are welcomed into a creation that values beauty, delight, and health. There are days when beauty, delight, and health come easy, and we feel we live in the smile of the universe. There are others where our fruitfulness, our created abilities are thwarted. Ugliness, anxiety, and sickness surround us. The universe and its creator seem less friendly and, dare I say, less trustworthy. We move from awe to terror. Covid, death, isolation, fear, loneliness. At times this year has felt less of a garden bursting with colour, delight and nourishment and more like a barren wasteland. The past few years have been difficult for our family. We have lost people we love. As many of you will know, Karen, our 11-year-old daughter, fractured her skull a few weeks ago. And as we raced to Belfast in the middle of the night, I shook from head to toe while she lay sedated beside me in the ambulance. Be fruitful, you say. If we take the Bible at its word, it doesn't say that some people will be fruitful some of the time. Perhaps there is something of beauty, delight and health to be wrestled out of even the bleakest of times. This is the profound mystery of God and his creation. Someone wants to find mystery as something about which the last word can never be said. We will never fully understand the awful terror of God or his creation. We don't seek out dark and chaotic places, but when we find ourselves in them, we might discover a secret garden, magic fruit, if you like. It doesn't make sense rationally, but then this is mystery. Lack meets abundance. Vulnerability meets strength. I'm suggesting that terror and awe are perhaps closer together than we usually think. Perhaps they are not opposing forces, but both doorways to the force. Perhaps both have the capacity for fruitfulness. Sometimes we find God and are fruitful through awe. Other times we need to head straight towards the terror. That way also leads home. But like fruit, mystery is delicate. It can be crushed. So much noise around us seeks to do just that. And we become afraid once again that the weeds will strangle us and we will get lost, drowned in the chaos. 
Peter is thinking today about purpose. We believe all of creation has purpose. We humans are intentioned beings, created to live intentionally, to replant that which was pulled up, to cultivate and care for that which needs our protection, to create beauty, delight, health, even unto death. Fruitfulness is one aspect of our purpose, to be and to do. But I am suggesting it is not measured by any human measure of success. It can be conceived in the most unexpected of circumstances. As we shake and weep, and perhaps the most beautiful, the most delightful, the most nutritious fruit is birthed amidst the terror. This is the awe of our purpose. So, and so as Rose said, we don't take that, the promise in Jeremiah 29 that she said at the start lightly, whether we're married or single, whether we're young or old, whether we're rich or poor, he still makes the same promise to us. In Jeremiah 29, 11, for surely I know the plans I have for you, God is saying to you today, plans for your welfare and not to harm, to give you a future with hope. And so we come in to land on this last of our F's on flourishing. We need to understand the foundational stories on which our life is built. We need to take seriously our own formation. We are being formed every day. The only question is by who? or what? We are called to faithfulness, a long obedience in the same direction, resting in his faithfulness rather than our own. Rose has talked about the beauty and the delight of fruit birthed in both terror and awe, and finally flourishing. Mark Sayers says this, if secularism is the attempt to create a system of human flourishing in which the presence of God is absent, then surely the counterformational answer is God's presence. We live in a secular culture that wants to get rid of God and find flourishing there. And our counterformation to say, no, flourishing is found in the presence of God as we go after that. What if the secular moment in our culture is only a crisis if we ignore God's call for renewal? What if we reframe this moment as brilliantly good news that everything in fact depends on God's presence? That is, we have been stripped away and everything's laid bare in this moment. That has been exposed. The Holy Spirit is reforming our hearts that have been deformed by a toxic culture. Daniel and the exiles were to seek the peace and prosperity, the flourishing of the very people who carried them into exile. Jeremiah 29, 7, we read about this. They're to seek the shalom. And that word shalom means wholeness. The dynamic vibrating health of a society that pulses with divinely directed purpose and surges with life transforming love. If we simply translate it as peace, we miss something of the richness and the depth of what is going on here. Jesus in the Beatitudes calls us to be salt and light. That's our purpose. Salt is both savory and preservative. It brings out the taste and the flavor but it also preserves, that is, it stops the decay. But it only works if salt is salt, if it is chemically different than the meat on which it has been put. And so we are to be salt and to be light. 
And that light works best in the darkness. If you go into a really well-lit room and you bring a light, that doesn't make much difference. But you go into a dark space and you shine that light and suddenly it transforms that place. That's what we're to be and that is about mission. John Tyson puts it this way. This idea of being salt and light is about kingdom embodiment. It's about the rule and the reign of God, about being potent and provocative in this moment. The great theologian Stanley Horowitz says this, the most interesting creative and political solution we Christians have to offer our troubled society is the church. Here we show the world a manner of life the world can never achieve through social coercion or governmental action. We serve the world by showing it something it is not, namely a place where God is forming a family out of strangers. This season is tough because so much of what we consider to be church has been stripped away. Can you be church without gathering? Yes. Just ask the church in Iran or in China or in many parts of India. Is gathering important? Yes. Just ask those very same people who desperately want to be able to do that. But our purpose is not only found in the gathered environments, but it is found in the scattered God made us to work and to serve the world around us, to serve him and to serve others. Some do that in church, some do it in a Christian organization. Most don't, nor do most that we read about in the Bible. Noah was a marine engineer. Moses was a sheep farmer. Esther was a beauty queen. Daniel was a special advisor. But going forward, the church is going to look different. It's estimated that 9% of Church of England churches won't reopen following covid the death of nominalism has been accelerated. Churches will be leaner and more decentralized with smaller staff teams in all probability and more volunteers. But society is also going to look different. The government can't afford to keep spending money at this rate. There's an economic price to pay, but perhaps more disturbingly, the social fabric of society is fraying. Loneliness, relationship breakdown, anxiety and educational problems, neglected health issues, the list could go on. The vaccine is potentially huge, but there won't be a binary kind of light switch moment when life returns to what it was. And our purpose in all of this is to bring about flourishing in ourselves and in others. God has a purpose for you. As you listen, as you watch today, maybe later on on the podcast, maybe right now on the live stream, he has a purpose for you. Perhaps in that moment you don't know Jesus and you're looking and you're just wondering about what we're talking about. Perhaps you've drifted away from a relationship with Jesus. This morning, this afternoon as it probably is now, he, there's a moment where he's saying, yeah, I have a purpose for you wherever you're sitting. So perhaps if that's you and you don't know Jesus, you want to just kind of pray along with me as I speak these words. Perhaps you've drifted and you want to recommit your life. And he's saying, I have a purpose for you in this moment. Say something simply like this, God, I've got my foundations wrong. I've lived my life without you and messed up. I want your forgiveness and I commit myself to you. Help me to submit your life to your teaching, to be formed and shaped by you. I receive you into my life and I ask you to fill me with your Holy Spirit. Give me a purpose-driven life. I guess that's the prayer actually for all of us, even if we're well on the journey. Many of us can feel the margins are getting tighter. There's very little left. It won't take much to push us over. If it's just up to us, it's not going to end particularly well. This is a formational 
moment. This is Daniel in exile. This is Esther before Xerxes. This is Paul in prison. We are all and each of us being stripped back and laid bare. That's why it feels tough. It is tough. This is often a painful process. And in this moment, God is saying, it's not about you. It's about him, his goodwill, his delight, his purposes. It's not so much about us inviting him into our lives and our terms, which has so often been our way and our mindset, saying, I invited you into my story. I invited you into the epic of this world. I have a purpose for you. You might not feel like it at this moment, but he has absolutely promised and declared that purpose over your life. Two things I sense he's saying, and these might sound a little contradictory. One is let go and the other is get serious. Let go. It's on him. He declared it's his purposes, not about our purpose. But he is also saying get serious about some of this stuff. If we're going to spend 15, 20 minutes a week engaging with him and then wondering why things aren't working out, he's saying, come on guys, I'm faithful. But we need to lean in as well. Understand what it is to be shaped and formed in this moment. But his message is one of comfort always. Please don't hear that in a kind of harsh way. This is Advent. This is the first Sunday of Advent. It's the season of coming. That's what Advent means. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Emmanuel is God with us. And so let me just close with a kind of prayer of blessing before I hand over to Steph, over those of you who are listening now and watching. Just pray for that sense of Sabbath rest in your heart and in your home. A real sense of peace in the busyness of this Christmas season, strange as it is in this period of kind of lockdown. I pray a real sense of calm in the increasing disruption that's going on in our culture around us. And I pray in all of that, in the stripping away and in being laid bare, that we will have a sense of the wonder and the magic of Advent. That this Christmas will be a particular blessing to us, but also to those around us as we get to bless them with these 4,000 cards and with this offering that we've taken for our community. But that we will be filled with a childlike sense of awe and wonder. Like Mary, that we too will be kingdom carriers, living into God's purposes for us. Thank you for joining us for our podcast today. For more information, resources, and opportunities, you can check us out at cosmicoastvineyard.com.